Oh, I, I, know, I know that we, we've had a lot of fun so far, and I know that I'm going to be really brief. I know, don't start laughing yet. Um, but we, if you're just joining us, we have been slowly working through the book of Acts because the reality is we're building upon, even our church, 70 years in, is still building upon a foundation of those who have come before us. And so we have been exploring uh, the experience of the early church and how God used them to impact and to transform the, the world around them. Uh, not because we're trying to be become the early church. They had their own issues. They were working through their own stuff, but simply that we can learn from them. In, so that within our own context, we can represent God as well. And if you have not been a part of the last two conversations over the last two weeks, we've been looking at one particular story that we're going to complete today. And it's a story that, of about 24 hours in which two very ordinary men who had walked with God and been transformed by God, namely Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples who became sent ones or apostles, uh, to simply share what they had seen and heard, these two ordinary men are heading up to Temple Mount one day to pray. And yet, they were men who, although busy, although they had other plans, were very interruptible. And when the Holy Spirit tapped them on the shoulder and pointed to one particular guy, they stopped and they engaged. And that one particular guy was this man who we learned from the scriptures uh, had been a cripple for 40 years. And every day... Over the course of his life, he's carried to the gate to one of the entrances to Temple Mount. He doesn't go onto it. He doesn't go into the temple. He sits just outside of it, and he begs. He begs of the people who are going up to worship. And I can't even begin to imagine how disheartening, how dehumanizing that must have been for that man. Day after day after day to have men and women who proclaim the name of God walk right by him like they can't even see him. And, and to walk right by him and, and pretend that they are deaf to his cries. And eventually this guy gets so <clears throat> calloused that he ceases to see himself as a child of God. He begins, I'm sure, to see himself as his ailment, as a cripple. And he stops looking even at people. To do so is way too intimate, way too opening himself to be rejected. He stops looking at people and instead all he sees are wallets and pockets and, and bags of money walking by him. And he just keeps crying out, penny for the poor, penny for the poor, because it's a numbers game at this point. All he needs is one out of every 10 and one out of every 50 to, to throw something in the till as they keep going for him to be able to eat that night. I can only imagine the weight of, of the chains of embarrassment and sorrow and, and a lack of hope that have kind of just held this man's heart down. And suddenly, on a day like any other day for him, he meets two ordinary men who have been transformed by an extraordinary God, who have been filled with God's Spirit, so they no longer see him through their own eyes. They see him through God's eyes. They no longer march to the beat of their own heart. They march to the beat of Christ's heart. And so they are willing, although busy, they're willing to be interruptible. And they stop when the Holy Spirit taps them on the shoulder and says, that one. And Peter and John walk up to this guy. <laughs> and they wait for him to make eye contact. And then Peter says, hey, listen. I don't have any money, but what I have, I freely offer to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise and walk. 
And then Peter reaches down and he grabs this man's hand, a man who had never stood a day in his life on his own strength, and he helps him to his feet. And this man's hips and his legs and his bones are strengthened. God does something supernatural even to help his balance so that he can stand upright. And of course, I'm sure he was probably leaning on Peter and John at first. But in that moment, can you imagine the heart transformation that took place for that guy? As those chains of shame and embarrassment, his identification with his ailment, all of those chains fall away. And in its place, his heart begins to get buoyed up by joy, overwhelming joy. And he begins to walk and step and then skip and hop and shout and praise God for what he's experiencing. As, as he's led by Peter and John into the temple for the first time. Not just on the outside, into it. And as he's doing as he's hopping and jumping and praising God people start to notice. Isn't it sad that when, you, when somebody enters his courts with thanksgiving and praise, it would stand out? I always found that ironic. So people are like, what's going on? He's not being respectful of this area, right? And, and as they start gathering around, they start going, isn't that that guy? And as this crowd begins to gather around, Peter recognizes it for what it is. It's an opportunity to share the gospel with those who are curious because they see a transformed life. And so Peter speaks up to the crowd and says, hey, don't think that we did anything. It wasn't us that healed this man. It is the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you today healed. He's transformed his life. And by the way, he can transform yours as well. That is a really, really compact version of what he says to him. But he doesn't pull his punches. And a lot of people accept Jesus Christ that day. A lot of people choose to follow him as their Lord and their Savior that day. But all of this going on in that court of that temple area is not not noticed. There's a group of men who are the power brokers of that area. The, the high priests the temple guards, the elders of the people who preside over the temple mount, who see that there's a commotion going on, they come over and they begin to hear Peter declaring that Jesus Christ, whom they crucified, they were the ones who said, this guy is a false messiah, he's got to go. And he's saying, Jesus Christ isn't dead. He's alive. He's been raised by God and he's the one who has healed this man. And they go, this is dangerous. This is a dangerous line of thinking. This is going to mislead the people almost as badly as Jesus himself speaking those words misled the people. And we've got to shut this up. Why were they so afraid? Well, for one, they'd already tried, weighed, and measured, and decided that Jesus was not the, the Messiah that they thought he was going to be. He wasn't a conquering king, so they rejected him. Secondly, they were from a tribe or a, a group of people called the Sadducees, who didn't actually believe that there would be a resurrection from the dead. So the fact that they were claiming that Jesus rose from the dead and still has any sort of power was anathema. It was, it was heresy in their minds. So they had to shut these guys up. And so they do what power brokers have done throughout history. They flex their muscle. They arrest Peter and John. They throw them into the, the holding tank there on Temple Mount or somewhere. I'm not quite sure where. And they hold them overnight. And the next day, they bring them before the Sanhedrin, the ruling group of men 
who, are, who basically are charged with representing God to the people in Jerusalem. Keep in mind, these are the same men who two months before had presided over the trial of Jesus. And in that trial, they decided that Jesus was not the Messiah they were waiting for, and they demanded his death. No, they didn't kill him. Rome did that. But you better believe that they were the ones who shouted that it had to happen. And on that night that Jesus was being tried by this very group of people, Peter was outside sitting around a campfire denying even knowing Jesus, not once but three times because he was so afraid he might get embroiled in what was going on with his rabbi. And now two months later, Peter's not standing outside that place. He's standing right before this very same group that demanded Jesus' murder, and he's on trial now. But the man that stands before them is a very different man than that shrinking violet that two months before had denied even knowing Jesus and tried to like fade into the background. Because this man has seen Jesus alive and he's been filled with the same spirit that filled up Jesus and empowered him throughout his public ministry. And so as he's standing before them, he is not willing to pull punches. Can we throw up kind of a, the, the digest of what he says here? This is what he declares. This is what he says to the Sanhedrin. If you're asking how this crippled man was given the ability to walk, then hear this, you rulers and elders of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name by which we must be saved. That does not sound like the words of a man who is afraid to die, or perhaps to put it another way, that does not sound like the same guy who two months before denied even knowing Jesus. Them's fighting words. Now, the Sanhedrin, this group of elders, the high priests, are, are kind of shocked at his words because they recognize him as nothing but an ordinary fisherman. He hasn't been trained, but they know that he has been discipled by Jesus. He's one of those Jesus people. They take note of that. They take note of the fact that there's a man hopping, skipping, and maybe doing cartwheels in the temple courts that used to be a cripple. We can't deny that. But oh boy, these guys are stirring up something that we thought we put a lid on a long time ago. They won't shut up. And they're saying theologically dangerous things. We need to shut them up. And so they look at Peter and John and say, hey, listen, we're going to let you off this time. But don't do it again. Zip it. Do not preach in this man's name anymore. And I love the way that Peter responds. Can we throw that up there? This is Peter's response to the men who murdered Jesus. Which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you? Or to him, you be the judges. I love that because they were the judges of the people. You be the judges of what we should, who we should listen to, God or you. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Do you know what the name witness, that's all there are. We're witnesses, right? Do you know what the word witness is in Greek? Martyr. That would come to hold a new meaning later on. Hey, all we can tell you is what we've seen and heard. We've seen Jesus. We have heard the good news and we wanted to share it. The Sanhedrin wants to shut them up, but they won't shut up. And so they heap more 
threats upon them. But I mean, they've, they've got a guy who is crippled who's walking around. What are they going to do? Kill him because they healed a cripple? So they let them go. And it is on the heels of that that we now pick up the conversation. We pick up this thread of the story in Acts chapter 4. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the seat back in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that one can be yours because we've got extras. But we're going to go to Acts chapter 4, verse 23. And what we're going to look at this morning is what Peter and John do on the heels of of being told by the most powerful religious leaders in the land to shut up and to stop saying the name of Jesus, to stop claiming that he has somehow come back to life and has healed a cripple. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. Upon their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, when the church, and I don't think it's all 5,000 of the church, I'm sure that they probably went back to one of the houses where many of them are staying. Maybe it's that upper room area, although we don't really know. But as they share with the believers that are there, verse 24, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And this is their prayer. All of what I'm about to read is a prayer. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, King David. And then they quote Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus like you just did. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. I will confess to you as I read that, it seems ridiculous. It is not the prayer I would anticipate of a group of people that are beginning to taste the, the, the hard, bitter fruit of persecution. This is just the first tastes of it. It's going to get worse. But they've just had two of the apostles who did a powerful miracle, arrested and put on trial and basically said, if you don't shut up, you will die just like Jesus did. And I got to admit, instead of, I'm surprised that instead of praying for protection, instead of thanking God, thank you God for protecting Peter, thank you for protecting John, would you protect us more from them? That's not what they pray. They pray something very, very different. So let's go ahead and go back through that prayer that they pray. Verse 24, they begin with these words, Sovereign Lord. So they begin by anchoring their prayer in acknowledging who they're praying to. Sovereign Lord. Now, in English, that's two words. In Greek, it's one. Typically, whenever they're referring to God as Lord or Jesus as Lord, they use a Greek word, kyrios, which means Lord. 
More often than not in Scripture, that is the title used to refer to God, but that is not the word they use in this instance. They use a different word. Can we throw that up there? The word they use is despotes. Does, any, does that look like an English word that you guys are familiar with? Despot. Despot. Ooh, that's a bad word, Eric. Despot, right? This is a word, by the way, in Greek that was used, that a slave would use to refer to his master. My despotes, my despot. It is a word that acknowledges one person's absolute authority and power over them. Whatever you say goes for me. Now, in our language, despot tends to be a bad word. Because, you know, absolute power corrupts what? Absolutely. And with human beings, that's true. In fact, this word despot in English, we typically don't say despot by itself. We add a little adjective to it. Do you know which one that is? Tyrannical. Anybody ever heard that? A tyrannical despot? This idea that to be somebody with absolute authority over another person will automatically corrupt them and cause them to be a tyrant. And that is true of human beings. For the most part, People with absolute authority will abuse it because they more often than not do not consider the people under them. But God is different. We're talking about God here. And they are acknowledging that God is sovereign. I think in their minds the recognition is that he is a benevolent despot. He is sovereign. Unlike those so-called power brokers, he's the one who has power, not them. He's the one who's in control, not them. He is the one who holds the power of life and death, not the so-called power brokers of Israel. And it's with that idea in mind, with their benevolent despot that they pray, Sovereign God, our benevolent despot, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You made them and you own them. They're yours. And then they quote King David they quote a, a, words that he wrote in the beginning of Psalm 2 that may, they may not have realized were prophetic, but they're now beginning to realize were radically prophetic. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Those words penned by David who they're suggesting God had him right through the enablement of the Holy Spirit, had become prophetic because that's exactly what happened. King Herod and Pontius Pilate, they banded together with the Gentiles and the rulers of the Jews to stand against God's anointed Redeemer, and they murdered him. And while that may seem like God is not sovereign because they murdered the one he sent, even in their standing against him, they were doing his will. Because this was exactly how God intended to redeem his people, was to have Jesus die for us, to redeem us. Tyrannical despot, I think not. Not when that despot is willing to sacrifice himself for those he has authority over, right? That's what's so audacious about the gospel message. It makes no sense from an earthly human standpoint where it's all about power structures. In God's economy, those with power lay it down to lift up those without power. Those with voices use those voices to give voice to the voiceless. 
And that's what Jesus has done for us, what God did through him. God, even when they try to stand against you, they still do your will. And on the heels of that, verse 29, they come to their requests, and there's two of them. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with greater boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and to perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Can we just stop there for a second and acknowledge the ridiculousness of what they've just asked for? They just experienced the first taste of persecution. They were just told, shut up or you die. And what do they ask for? Greater boldness to keep speaking. And God continue to work miracles to open doors so that we can continue to share. That is so radically contrary to what we pray for. Isn't it? Or maybe that's just me. I catch myself. As I've been preparing this, I have been catching myself how often I pray for something radically different. I pray for peace. I pray for protection. And I pray for safety. And I think that is a large part a testament to the culture I have been raised in. We live in a society that worships our safety, that worships our comfort, that places that as the preeminent value that we should live after. Because after all, all men are created equal and are endowed with the inalienable right of life, liberty, freedom, and the pursuit of what? happiness. I deserve to be happy, Dagnabbit. Of course, that's not what the framers of the Constitution intended when they used the word happiness. It would probably be written differently if we used the language of today. You have the right to life, freedom, and the pursuit of character. That's what happiness meant to the original framers, but it means something in our cultural context different, and we take it that way. I deserve to be happy. I deserve to be safe. And by the way, that mindset has percolated even into the church. We have bought into the belief that if I follow Jesus, he will keep me safe. He will keep me from dying from cancer. He'll keep my kids from going off the deep end. Or listening to, I don't know, the Backstreet Boys or something, I don't know. Or rap. Let's just say that. He'll keep my kids from listening to rap. Um, Or country music. (laughs) Just kidding. I don't know. I don't care. He will give me my best life now. Now, I know that we, head-wise, we say, no, that's not true. But let's be honest. We follow Jesus with the mindset that the more faithful I am, the more he's going to protect me. The more he's going to preserve me. And then I, as a pastor, when I get ready to pray for somebody, I just did it this morning out in the hallway. I caught myself. As somebody is experiencing discomfort in their body, God, protect them. As somebody is preparing to, has been encountering persecution, maybe it's at work or in their family, or they're about to go on a mission trip down to Tijuana, and the first thing I pray for is, God, keep them safe. What does that say about what we worship as a society? Safety is paramount. And we think that God is concerned about that. 
But as I read the book of Acts, and as I look at the testimony of Scripture, I see a very different value that is running through the heart of the early church. Yes, they cared about their safety. Just look at Peter denying Jesus. Like, he wants to protect himself. And yet, that was not their primary concern. They understood that following Jesus did not equate to their safety. They recognized it could be downright dangerous. In fact, Jesus warned them, listen, guys, in this world, you'll have trouble. But you can take heart in the fact that I've overcome the world, that because of what I'm about to do, even the brokenness of this life and the persecution you will endure, it won't get the last word. (laughs) As I think about the mindset that they have, I think that it's epitomized by a little conversation that happens right at the end of C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Many of us are familiar with it. It's a conversation that takes place between one of the kids, a girl Lucy, and Mr. Beaver, who, who is from Narnia. And Lucy is about to meet Aslan, who is, you know, the, the Christ character in C.S. Lewis's stories. She's about to meet Aslan, but she's just come to the realization that he's a lion and not a man. And it's scary, understandably. I mean, you're about to meet a walking, talking lion. And these are her words. Um, is, is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And then this is Mr. Beaver's. I know that was really good, wasn't it? Whatever, Mike. Listen to Mr. Beaver's response. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Safe? He's not safe. He's a lion. He's a lion of the tribe of Judah. No, he's not safe, and following his not, him is not safe. But he is good, and he's the rightful king of creation. And I think the early church got that way better than we do, by the way. Were they concerned about their safety? Oh, sure. But they understood that following Jesus meant that they got to follow his example. And let's just look at Jesus' example. Although he is the Son of God, or we could say God incarnate... God in human flesh, he suffered persecution, he suffered mockery, he was beaten, and he was ultimately murdered. And he did it and endured it all out of love for those he came to save. The very ones who whipped him, the very ones that drove the nails into his wrists and into his feet, the very ones that mocked him as he bled out on a cross, those and you and I are who he came to serve, and he did it by dying. So is he safe? Heck no, he's not safe, but he's good. And after he had been buried for a couple of days, God reached down, breathed his spirit back into him and raised him back to life. For about 40 days, he interacted with his disciples and then God brought him back into heaven to sit at his right hand and declared him to be king of kings and lord of lords, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is lord and king. So is he safe? Heck no, he's not safe, but he's good and he's the king, I tell you. And on the heels of that, the early church recognized that to follow Jesus meant to follow in his footsteps, to take up your cross daily 
and follow him, even if that meant that people would mock them, which they did. Even if that meant that people would reject the gospel message, which many of them did. Even if it meant that they were arrested for their faith, which just happened. And even if it meant that it would cost them their life, which for most of them it ultimately did. But they knew that to follow Jesus, where else are you going to go? He's the only one with the words of life, right? Where are we going to go but to be with you? And in the same way that God, after they had endured much, God raised them from the dead, they knew that the brokenness of the persecution of this world, where a world will stand arrayed against them and resistant to them, they won't win because God has already won through the cross. And they too, the persecution they endured wouldn't get the last word. Even their death wouldn't get the last word. And I can't help but think of John's words in Revelation. Can we throw that up there? These are, this is the words of Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That is what the early church was like. They didn't love. Yes, they wanted to be safe. Yes, they wanted to be protected. Yes, I'm sure they wanted to be comfortable. But that was not their ultimate goal. Whereas we tend to put safety as paramount, they recognized that although they wanted to be safe, even Jesus wanted to be safe. God, if there's any way we can do this differently, let's go with that. But not what I will, but what you will. Because at the end of the day, God, I want to be about what you're about. And I want you to help yourself to my life to do whatever it is that you want to do. So if you want to invite me to speak into someone's life knowing that they will mock me for it, bring it. If you want me to speak the words you've placed on my heart for somebody, even though somebody will think I'm a Jesus freak, I'm in. If you want me to preach the gospel, the good news, as I have seen and heard it and understand it, even though I'll be arrested for it and maybe even killed for it, here I am. Use me to do whatever it is you want me to do. They understood that. And so, instead of praying for boldness, I'm sorry, instead of praying for safety, they pray for boldness. God, don't, th th their words aren't, God, thank you for protecting Peter and John for those big bad men. Would you please protect us too? No, they say, God, they have stood against you and they accomplished your will in doing so. You are sovereign. You have complete authority over us. So now here's our request. Give us more boldness to continue speaking in those opportunities and continue to do what only you can do, doing miracles that open the door and confirm the words that we speak. Keep moving. Here we are. Help yourself to our lives. I got to say, boldness is not a lack of fear. You have, you've often heard the, the, the thing, courage isn't the lack of fear, it's the willingness to kind of run into what you fear in spite of it, or something, some rendition of that. I would say that boldness is exactly the same way, at least biblical boldness is we're talking about here. Because there's lots of people who can be bold, and it's almost synonymous with just being tone deaf and a jerk, right? You can be bold in, in kind of like an inappropriate, gruff, like, I'm just going to say whatever I'm going to say, you know, pardon my French, but, and, and, and that's not an excuse for being a jerk. 
But biblical boldness that we're talking about, biblical boldness is not a lack of fear, is not a blindness to danger. Biblical boldness is a recognition of it, but a willingness to say what I fear and my own safety is less important than what you're calling me to do, God. Does that make sense? And as I've been grappling with what does boldness look like, um, there's three things, or where does boldness come from? I think that there's three components to boldness. Please be Berean about this. Don't take my word for it, but just, just think about this. The first thing that you need to have in order to have biblical spiritual boldness is a spiritual conviction that something is off about the world. This should not be, or this isn't the fact, and this should be. And so there's a recognition that something is off. And that has to come from the Holy Spirit. That can't be something contrived. Shouldn't be something that you get from a political party. Shouldn't be something that you get just by reading social media feeds. This has to come from the Holy Spirit that something is not right. Secondly, there needs to be a sense of urgency. That this can't wait. I've got to speak on this. And again, this has to come from the Holy Spirit. Just being an activator, of which I am one, is not a good enough excuse for running off at the mouth without thinking through the consequences. But if the Holy Spirit says, you need to speak, there's a sense of urgency, then to not speak, right? And then, so those are the first two components, both of which must, 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 in order for this to be spiritual boldness, must come from the Holy Spirit. Something is wrong with the world today, and I have a sense of urgency. But the third component... The third component comes from us, and that is a willingness in light of the realization that this could cost me, and I'm a little bit afraid to step out, but here I am, God, use me. I'm in. The first two, something's wrong, something needs to be done now, come from the Holy Spirit. The third part, I'm in, comes from us. I can think of no better way to illustrate this than to let somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus tell you about somebody he encountered who was bold. So there's this guy, uh, Penn Jillette. You may know him from the, the group Penn and Teller. He's a Hollywood musician. Uh, 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 no, Hollywood magician. He is an outspoken atheist, continues to be today. But a few years back, he had an encounter with a Jesus freak who is not a normal, typical Jesus freak. This man is a businessman. But God gave him supernatural boldness to step out and to talk to Penn Jillette. And this, is, was his, this was Penn's response to it. I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show. And at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we, uh, we talk to folks and you know, sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the um, what I call the hover position after I was all done. Big guy, probably about my age. Big guy. And um, he had been the, um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so he had the props from that in his hand because we'd give those away. He had the the joke book and the and the envelope and the paper and stuff. If you haven't seen the live show, I, uh, it's not worth explaining. But he had props in the show that we'd given him from the night before. Uh, he wasn't the guy that night. 
and he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted, and he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament. Little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, liked your show and so on, and then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man. And uh, that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave me that book. That's all I wanted to say. <laughs> Leave it to an avowed atheist to like completely convict a pastor, right?
I mean, let me just reread a couple of his words. If you believe that there's a heaven or hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody not to share your faith, not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, at some point, I'm going to tackle you. And this is more important than that. The reality is, there will be people who will scoff at us. There will be people that you step out in boldness and speak what God is putting on your heart in humility, in love, not using it as an excuse to be a jerk. And they'll still laugh at you, reject it, go on with life as if you didn't say it. Maybe you won't get a promotion. Maybe your coworker will look at you differently, maybe eat somewhere else the next time. In our country, we don't have to be afraid of somebody killing us for our faith. Most people don't have to deal with that here in America. But there are certainly people around the world who daily have to decide, do I love God enough to be used by Him even though it may cost me my life? But all of us need to ask ourselves, am I willing to trust God more than I fear being rejected, more than I fear being labeled a Jesus freak. Because at the end of the day, what am I most afraid of? Being rejected or people dying without knowing Jesus Christ as their Savior, as their Lord? What am I more afraid of? Being judged, maybe even persecuted, or people going to hell apart from Jesus, right? So here's the invitation this morning is not to pray for more safety for us as a church, but to invite God to fill our hearts with boldness so that the Holy Spirit has the right to prompt our heart, tap us on the shoulder, say, that one. And when those opportunities present themselves, to speak His words that He lays on our heart with humility and gentleness, but confidence irrespective of the cost. So here's what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray a prayer. It is my prayer for me. And if it resonates with you, then I invite you to make it your prayer as well. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward, but let me just pray this. Father God, our benevolent dictator, we ask for forgiveness for our fixation on safety and comfort. I admit that I have sought to be safe and comfortable far too long. Forgive us for avoiding the awkward conversations out of fear of looking like a Jesus freak. And we ask you to give us greater boldness than we've had so far. We recognize that it might cost us, but that's nothing compared to the cost of remaining silent. So we choose to follow you, even though we know it's not all that safe. But that's okay, because you are our sovereign king, and you're good. 
And so we invite you, Jesus, to lead on. We choose to follow. We choose to, to lay our lives at your feet and say, help yourself to us in the spheres of influence that we find ourselves in. We invite you to interrupt us in what we're doing. God, would you give us the eyes to recognize where you're already moving and, and then we invite you to invite us into that. And we pray that you would do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. So we ask for boldness and we ask that you would be moving and confirming our words with your works. We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Let's go ahead and just respond as his family, as his kids, as those who are invited to be his representatives.